Alright, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, coming up on the show today, we had our long-awaited interview with uh, Colin Beattie, the SNP MSP um, for the Scottish Parliament. Um, basically, we had a nice a good chat with the guy, um, myself and um, Hattrick. We played it, just to be honest, we played it safe. We asked some good questions. We felt quite, it was a nice, comfortable meeting. It was great fun to do. Um, yeah, it was good. I totally enjoyed it. It's actually it's good to get our feedback from um, um, some views on an SNP side um, of the spectrum. And hopefully we'll get maybe somebody from Labour or Conservatives and Lib Dems. Um, so it's always good to get this information, especially when it's coming up to the general election. So please sit back and enjoy... On the Hattrick and Ramsey Unleash the People's podcast, interview with Colin Beatty, member of the Scottish Parliament and from the Scottish National Party. Please enjoy. Thanks again. You're listening to Hattrick and Ramsey Unleashed. The People's Podcast. We are here to rock the podcast world. Hello, people. Welcome to Hatrick and Ramsey Unleashed, the People's Podcast. Thank you for listening here. We have our interview with uh, Colin Beatty, the MSP for the party SNP, just for to abbreviate that, the under-abbreviate that is Scottish National Party, and he's a member of the Scottish Parliament for Dalkeith, Musselburgh? Uh, for Midlothian, Northern Musselburgh. Okay, uh, not Dalkeith. Well, it covers Dalkeith. So we're here to interview uh, Colin and get his views on um, going forward with the up-and-coming general election. We're also getting his views on with himself regarding uh, how he started in politics and also uh, what the SNP or his plans for the things that have been in the news recently and just to uh, see how they're going to be, be in interested in a coalition with Labour uh, if they won the general election uh, coming up and, and general things that have been going on. So I want to say welcome to Colin Beatty to our show. Thank you very much. Thank nice you to be here. So we're going to... Um, Hugh's here with us as well, uh, our partner in crime. Uh, he's going to start off with asking Colin uh, some uh, questions on... What do you want to start with? What do you prefer? Well, I think with the kind of post-referendum, I mean, there's that. no doubt the SNP have huge uh, <coughs> energy after that. Um, you must be quite excited going into the general election as to your prospects. Um, some people have been saying that you could, uh, you could win maybe 40-plus seats um, in the general election. Do you think that uh, that's correct, or are you, or, or do you think you're going to go for a more conservative, maybe 25 to 30 seats, or do you think it's going to be um, somewhere in that ballpark? Well, I think you've always got to be cautious with polls. Yeah. Um, we're weeks out from the election, and the polls are looking really, really good for us, but at the end of the day, we need the people to turn out on election day to, to vote. Mm. Um, I think, personally there'll be some tightening of the polls as we get closer to the actual general election. Mm -hmm. My opinion is that I'd be absolutely thrilled if we got, say, 20 seats, 20 mm -hmm. 25 seats. Absolutely yeah. thrilled. Mm -hmm. those, those people that think we're going to get 50, I think, have been really, really optimistic. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'd have a big party if we did get 50, yeah. but I'd, I'd be absolutely happy and uh, satisfied if we got 20, 25. Yeah. 
Let's be realistic about this. Yeah. So what do you think it is that's it's really brought about that momentum? Do you think it was just the, the galvanising of the independence vote in the referendum um, and that's kind of carried on? Or do you think that there's something... Because there's been a real split from people who used to vote Labour now going to the SNP. I, th- I think there's a fundamental change in the political landscape in Scotland. And, you know, we're into new uncharted waters. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really knows where this is going to end up. But I think we're at one of these tipping points in history where the political makeup of Scotland is about to change profoundly, mm-hmm. possibly for the next generation. Yeah. Um, if you look back in history, for example, um, Scotland used to be basically Tory. Yeah, yeah that's true. And yeah. uh, in fact, the Tory party, I think in 1955, was it, mm-hmm. is the only political party that's ever won an absolute majority of the vote in Scotland in the, in the Westminster yeah. elections. Yeah. Now, that was a long time ago. Labour yeah. took that mantle from them yeah. gradually throughout the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And it became a Labour fiefdom. Now we're seeing a change again, a sea change, and I believe that the tide is moving with the SNP, mm. and I think the referendum perhaps is part of it, yeah. but it's not the whole part. Yeah. There, is, there, is, there is something happening at grassroots, mm-hmm. the fact that we're getting all these new members, I mean, 90-odd thousand new yeah. members, or, yeah. or at least 90-odd yeah. thousand yeah. membership. It's fantastic. And the branch I'm in, we've got hundreds of new members and they're bringing energy and dynamism, and they're coming in looking for change. They're excited. Yeah. They want yeah. to do something. They want to. They want to see something happening out there. And you know, there's not. There's. There, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. This sort of energy. You know, we haven't seen in decades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt it's quite exciting when you go down Buchanan Street in Glasgow and you see people putting up their political banners, and and you know, you can decide for yourself. Mm-hmm which one you want to support, but it's a good, healthy environment, I think, to have lots of different parties out there and people, um, you know, um, going out in the street to see what they believe in. I think it's a good thing. If you, you were saying, Ellen, you think it's not just independence referendum that's encouraged more people to come to the SNP, what do you think in terms of in your policies that have maybe encouraged people to come over to the SNP from Labour? I, I think uh, the problem Labour's had is that they have drifted very close to the Tories. Mm. And uh, if you look at a lot of the policies, uh, you couldn't put a sheet of paper between them and the Tories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's been a huge resentment uh, with the Tory Lib Dems, for example, in terms of the, the benefits changes that have been made, which mm-hmm. have hit the lowest income people in Scotland. Yeah. I think that people have seen that Labour hasn't stepped up yeah. to yeah. try and address that, whereas the SNP has. Mm-hmm. I think we're being seen as people that are genuinely trying to do better for Scotland. And, yeah. you know, Scotland is our focus, it's our main focus, it's our only focus. Yeah. And I think that, uh, I think people are recognising that. People people in Scotland are, by and large, they believe in social justice. Yeah. They, yeah. You know, I know these are buzzwords that you churn, that, you churn, that politicians churn out, yeah. but they have a meaning. Social justice means something. Mm-hmm. It means fairness. Yeah. It means a level playing field. It means looking after people in our society that don't, can't look after themselves, that have problems. Yeah. That's what a compassionate society is about. Mm. We still recognise that. That yeah. is still part of our agenda, an important part of our agenda. It yeah. seems to have slipped off Labour's agenda. Yeah. For example, yeah. when they voted uh, just a week or two back for the cuts mm-hmm. with the Tories, yeah. that they would continue these budget cuts. Yeah. I mean, it's bonkers. <coughs> uh-huh. You do not cut your way out of a recession. 
You, yeah. you never could. They tried it in the 1930s and they created unemployment like you wouldn't believe. Mm. Now, we're not getting the same level of unemployment, but what we're getting is we're getting low-income yeah. employment. Yeah. Uh, we're creating lots of part-time jobs. Yeah. The economy's not exactly booming ahead, it's stumbling ahead. Mm. And the gap between rich and poor is getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And people are starting to starting to look at that and be concerned about it. Yeah. And yet there is no real plan for how we're going to deal with that. Yeah. And it's all right. it's all very well to say, well, tax the rich. Well the rich will move. Yeah. And taxing the rich in the past, as Labour's trying to do, has never worked. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm a bit of a revolutionary in this and my personal view is the key to this is to increase the wages of the right. lower paid. Uh-huh. The people that are the people that are down at on the minimum wage. Yeah. So what would you think the minimum wage should be? I think the minimum wage should be... This is personal view, mind you. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I believe that the minimum wage should be progressively increased over a period of five to ten years. And I say five to ten years because I believe that uh, you have to do this without dis- any dislocation to the economy or whatever. It has to be a gradual process. And bring them up to a level where people don't have to be subsidised by the state because yeah. they're in jobs that don't pay them enough money to live. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's absolutely shocking. Yeah. The other day I had, a, I had a security guard in, wife and two kids, he's on £9,800 a year yeah. with a little bit of overtime. And he has to run a car on top of that because he's got unsociable hours and places to go that he can't get yeah. to the bus easily. Yeah. I think that's absolutely shocking. Yeah. I, c- businesses should not be subsidised by us, the taxpayers, to pay people substandard wages. Yeah. Why does that mean we're paying this guy uh, rent rebates? We're paying the guy council tax. Yeah. We don't, we're giving him all this all this money, yeah. and then they're stuck on it. They and then they're stuck on it. it. I mean, yeah. at the very bo- they're at the very bottom of the line, uh, and we have to get away from that. So yeah. the answer to me is not taxing the rich. Yeah. It's giving the lower income more money yeah. in their pocket, so that we can mm-hmm. close that gap yeah. between the rich and the poor. I mean, that certainly makes more sense because, as you say. I think one of the uh, one of the, 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 the historical things of always said right, we'll tax people at the high end, and there was a, an interesting program on the BBC a few weeks back called the Super Rich versus Us. Yeah. And at first, I thought oh, this could be quite interesting, and and it's true because it, <clears throat> it talked about the trickle down effect. And I think on the top one percent, it maybe doesn't quite work because they are they they have got mobility, so they can yeah. move anywhere where their taxes are going to be as little as possible, and that's. If you're a wealthy person, you're probably going to do that. But what it does do is then means that the government has to take the tax from everybody else. Yeah. And and then of course you've got the, maybe the the business owner or the the, the high end employees will be on forty or fifty grand a year, being absolutely clobbered for everything. That's right. And and any idea of well why should I do any overtime or any extra because I'm just going to be paying it all away in tax. So it kind of drives the economy down. So I think you know, it's interesting to say that you you wouldn't you're not per, for personally. Um, for high taxes on, on those that are as wealthy. Well, I'm not, I'm not uh, in favour of uh, taxing them because it doesn't work and historically we've yeah. never gained much money from yeah. it. Yeah. Let's, let's deal with the problem, yeah. not try and take money from one group to give to another group. Yeah. Let's, give them the, let's give them the dignity of a decent yeah. wage yeah. and bring up the low income yeah. in that way. Yeah. No, that does make sense because some people <coughs> were looking at different answers and talking to the public about what they thought would be a good idea. And one of the ideas that actually came out, um, uh, which has now actually been taken up by the Green Party, but only to a small extent, and I, I disagree with what they've actually decided to do, but rather than have lots of different benefits, is to have a, in a, what you're kind of saying, like a, a minimum income. So if somebody has a, a full-time job, they might get, let's say, £100 a week from the government. 
Um, but then that's it. They don't get anything else. They don't get housing benefit or anything else. But then they, they are free to go and earn whatever they want to earn. So they don't have to inform the council if they've suddenly got a job or if their hours have gone up from you know, 15 hours a week to 30 hours a week. That money is theirs regardless. And up until a level of income that's reasonable, it gives them the freedom to know that their basics are covered, but they're then able to go out and work. And so it gives them a much better quality of life. So that seems to be something that the Greens have decided that they, they call it a citizen's award. Um, and it's going to cost something like £240 billion. Pounds. And yeah. they, they couldn't figure out where the funding was going to come from. But with that, they wanted everything else. They wanted housing benefit and job seekers allowance and all these other things. So you can see why it's going to cost an absolute fortune. So I think that what you're saying is quite interesting. That you raise the income level, but then give people the freedom to... Well, but isn't the income level, in effect, you're incrementally reducing the income of the rich? Mm. That's that's the way it works because they're making less money out of the businesses mm. because obviously the, the, they're paying a bit more in tax. But if you do it gently over a period, the economy can absorb that. It will adjust itself, yeah. and we will get the results that we need. Yeah. Could I on, on the flip side of that coin, for example, now for me, I'm self-employed, running a business. Now, obviously, if you're employing somebody, and the, the minimum wage gradually goes up in a, at a scale. But the thing is, if you're a small business and you're employing somebody, say you're paying £7 an hour, and then the minimum wage starts to see goes to 7 50 legally you have to obviously put it up to mm. 7 50 But technically, with the businesses you have, your clients, you either have to put the cost onto your clients, and if they're not willing mm. to pay, yeah, they're going to have to say, listen, I can't afford you, thanks, because the wage is going up, because I, mean, I might as well do it myself. Yeah because you're going to get less profit for your business to grow, if you see, see my point. Well, there's a couple of points in that. Firstly, and again, I, I emphasise this as a personal point that, of view, yeah, that yeah, uh, I believe this should be done over a period, so mm. that you don't, you're not having the dislocation in the economy of having huge pay rises. Yeah. We're talking yeah. about bringing people up gradually to an yeah. economic wage in which they can live, and yeah. that's <clears> got to be a good thing for everybody. Mm. Small businesses. Small businesses are already pretty heavily supported by the government in terms of uh, business business rebates and so on, business yeah. rate rebates. But also, I find it quite interesting, one thing, I don't know whether you know about the Commonwealth, Commonweal, mm-hmm. um, there's one thing in there which I quite like, and that's moving some of the investment that's currently going into the, the big multinationals yeah. into small and medium enterprises in Scotland. Yeah. It's following, if you like, the Scandinavian model. Mm. So 75% of the people in Scotland are employed by these businesses. And we should be encouraging more to broaden the base. Rather than having a multinational, like maybe, I'll, I'll, give, an, I'll give an example, I'm not, I haven't got a down on Amazon, but yeah. they're, they're yeah. just there. Uh-huh. And they provide, I don't know, 300 jobs or whatever. Mm. And most of them are shelf-stacking jobs. Yeah. And that's fine. That that absorbs unemployment in a certain part of the, of the economy. Yeah. But they're there because of the tax breaks. They're there because there's a, an immediate benefit to them. Yeah. The flip side of that coin is that if they get a better deal elsewhere, there is a chance that they'll move. And yeah. we've seen that in the past. Yeah. So as long as the subsidies are there, they're there. More long-lasting, as we've seen from Scandinavia, is to put the money into our own small businesses to invest in them, to try and get them to grow, yeah. to expand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's another point about small businesses, if we followed the, my hypothesis that we increase the, the minimum wage, everybody would be doing the same. Okay. So you wouldn't be disadvantaged 
by going to your customer and saying, this is, I've had to put the price up because of this, because everybody else would be doing the same. So the economy would absorb it, mm. and all the different segments of the economy would adjust and come together on it. But what is that, in a sense, now this, this is obviously talks about immigration, now if you think about it, now I, in certain areas there's a lot of people coming from Europe, and they are offering, they're doing the jobs for less, and literally a lot less than what. Mm. And if these guys aren't here, are the you, local businesses would be flourishing in, in a big way because people there wouldn't be that option of instead of charging we for say thirteen pound an hour for a job for for say cleaning a professional cleaning service or something else, but they'll charge eight pound an hour just to get the job and they're, they're just the person will go from there whether they're good or bad, so technically they're driving, it's becoming more of a saturated market and it's harder. Mm-hmm. No, I I I agree that. Uh, We've had examples, not just from Eastern Europe, uh, which is usually the example everybody quote, but we've also had a lot of uh, Irish tradesmen coming across here from the Republic. And, uh, you know, they've had a recession also, and they've been willing to work for less wages and sometimes undercutting some of the businesses here in Scotland. It's a very hard one to to deal with. Some of the jobs that are being uh, being taken up by by these people are jobs that, frankly, a lot of Scots... Wouldn't want to do or yeah. are not prepared to do. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, the level of uh, immigration we've got in Scotland isn't that high compared to the rest yeah. of Europe. Yeah. Um, I remember the, the former first minister Alex Salmond said that uh, we needed a net immigration to Scotland of tw- about twenty-eight thousand. Mm. Now, since two thousand and one, we've actually been achieving twenty-two thousand. Yeah. And a lot of them are Scots coming back to Scotland yeah. as opposed to people net yeah, net coming, coming in from overseas. Yeah, yeah they've been coming back, they've seen the, they've seen relative prosperity. There's been a bit of excitement, of course, about the fact that the Scottish government has been driving some of the economic uh, mm. indicators here and they've seen opportunity. So as far as uh, the, the targets that the Scottish government previous Scottish government had, we're only six thousand short, which isn't yeah. that many. Yeah. So yeah. We need skilled people, yeah. and you know we've, we're very strong believers in a green card system, whereby if you've got the skills we need, yeah. you'll get the points, and you'll get the entry into the country. Yeah. But we're never going to be in a position where, in a free economy, if somebody's going to work for less, as long as they're within the minimum wage, there's yeah. not a lot you can do about it. Where, do, where I'd be concerned yeah. if somebody was getting employed at below the minimum yeah. wage, that would that would concern me. Yeah. Would you be able to do a green card system being a me- being a member of the EU though? Because if you've got free movement, you basically have to take whoever you get. Yeah, I mean, we would have free movement within the EU. Yeah, just like uh, Scots go and work elsewhere. I mean, what, yeah. what we forget is the sheer number of population, the sheer volume of population that's moved from Scotland to European countries and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I could ask you a trick question. What's uh, what's one of the biggest ethnic minorities here? Uh, I mean, the French. And well, it is a trick question. <laughs> well, I know a lot of French moved out of France to come to London, didn't they? There's, there's, there's 380,000 French in London. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Last figure I saw was there was about 48,000 in Scotland. Wow. Yeah. But topping the list are 50,000 Germans. Really? That's yeah. quite interesting. Yeah. Well, con- and I only know that because I'm convener of the cross-party group on Germany uh, in the <laughs> Parliament, and I was surprised to learn. Yeah. But, there, but there, there are huge numbers of, yeah. uh, of uh, Europeans working here, yeah. and you never hear of them. 
Yeah. They're just quietly working away, doing their jobs, part yeah. of the community. I think because they integrate quite a lot, isn't it? It's not, they do. It's not seen as such a different thing. In Scotland, integration has worked quite well for immigrants. Mm. There's always going to be lumps and bumps, but it's worked quite well. But don't forget, tens of thousands of Scots are working and living in Europe. Yeah. You know, it's a two-way yeah. street. Yeah. Probably kind of going on from that, um, having uh, my family have a lot of connections in the West... And it's the, big, the big thing comes down to, you know, we do have quite a lot of unemployed people in Glasgow and some of our big cities. Mm. How do you overcome that in, in, a, in this day and age where, you know, some people will say, well, the benefit system is quite generous. Other people will say, oh, there's not the jobs out there. But um, how do you think we can actually get some of these people back to work and, and into, you know, into good employment? Well, one of the frustrations that I have, and I'll give you an example here of barriers to people going back and work, because mm-hmm. an awful lot of people out there want to work, yeah, yeah. but the way the benefit system works, mm-hmm. they're disadvantaged. Yeah. So, for example, I need a house. I'll go to the council. Yeah. Now, there's not many council houses available these mm-hmm. days, mm-hmm. and you know, it's all right to say that between 1999 and 2007, during the Labour Lib Dem uh, yeah. coalition, they built eight council houses. Yeah. Since 2007, we've built something like 7,000. Yeah. Yeah. It's not enough. Yeah. We're way short. I mean, over the whole of Scotland, I saw a figure that we needed something like 100,000 social houses. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people on the housing list. Mm-hmm. Now, what councils, for example, like Midlothian Council do is they take private lets mm-hmm. and they go through a company called Orchard and Shipman. They do a private let, and as long as you're unemployed... That rent's paid for you. Yeah, yeah. You get a job, and you're paying a private rent, private rent, yeah. not a social rent. Yeah. And yeah. there's a huge discrepancy. So, for example, I had a girl the other day, in tears. She want, she'd had the opportunity of a job hmm. as a trainee hairdresser. She's a young girl. But she'd been put in a private let, and she would have had to pay something like £550 a month she wasn't earning that. Yeah. Not when you're a trainee hairdresser. Yeah. Now, I think that girl should have the opportunity to take up employment. And this is happening again and again. Mm-hmm. And it's not just young people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people of all ages, all skills, usually what, what we these days put under the umbrella of the working poor. Mm-hmm. Because they're trapped. Yeah. Yeah. They're trapped. They don't get benefits. They've got yeah. private rents they have to pay. They can't pay them. Yeah. I mean, where do you go? Yeah, see, I mean, I find that it's difficult. I mean, I think people are finding it difficult. Or get the mentality of saying, even just having a job, even if it is at the bottom of the scale, it's only it's a step in the ladder to try and climb. It is. You always have to people, the bottom of the scale. It's the first. It's the first step that counts. Yeah. And people, yeah. I found employing people that some people just don't have that. Oh, I can only work certain, like certain sixteen hours because it'll affect my benefits, and they're in that mentality. Yeah. Thinking, well. It's a job. It's money you didn't yeah. have, and it's but at least you're starting. And and people say I can't get a job, or I won't do this. They won't. Go, they some people have got pride, and they'll just they expect they think they yeah. can do this job, but they mm-hmm. won't go and do the dirty job as well to get to that job. And that's and they're, they're rather just sit and watch Jeremy Kyle all day yeah. and get paid for it. You know, you know what I mean? It's, so, it's, yeah. So it's it's not it's not the total. Yeah. totality of the issue with employment yeah, exactly. but it is a significant part yeah. for people that are currently unemployed they can't get back into employment because they cannot afford yeah. to, to pay the rents they can't yeah. afford to lose the benefits yeah. and that is daft and that comes back to yeah. my 
fantastic idea of increasing the minimum wage to a level that's economic. Should people who, for example, who are on benefits who maybe don't want, who there's a lot of people, there's obviously a section of people who maybe just don't deliberately don't want to work uh, because they're they're more comfortable in their benefits. But should there be a system in some way or form that if you're if you want to get if you want to get your benefits, they should be instead of say you don't want to get a job, they be forced to do something like a community service style yeah. work, like for example, offenders do. Uh, to put themselves back, something back into the economy. We're paying you money for nothing. You need to go and do some community service and get you some experience to put back into the system. Firstly, my experience, previously as a councillor and now as an MSP, is that there is a relatively small number of people that are actually on the benefit and staying there and want to stay there. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're the ones you hear about. They're the ones that people always point at. Yeah. And... It is a small percentage, and it is so disappointing that everybody that's on benefit seems to get tarred with the same brush, yeah. especially by the Tories. Mm-hmm. But having said that, um, those that I've ha- I've had people come to me and say, "Well, Colin, why don't why don't we have national service?" And they don't mean the army. Yes, they mean kind of a national service like, yeah. whereby you know even going out litter picking or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and. It's, a, it's an interesting thought, but the logistics of doing it Aye. and managing it and so on yeah. are quite difficult. Yeah. I like yeah. the thought, but, I, but it somebody's going to have to come up with the, with the, with the yeah, detail very, and the very, idea. Yeah, very innovative to try and, yeah. to try and sort but, it out. But the vast majority of people I find on benefit are people who life hasn't worked out for them. Aye. You know, yeah. normal, ordinary people like you and me that have just had a train smash. Yeah, and yeah. they've never managed to climb back out successfully yeah. Yeah. and that is the majority of people that are on benefit that are not getting back into work yeah. Yeah. and uh, you know they're a bit for the grace of God uh, yeah yeah. Okay. No, it's very true because a lot of it is family breakdown and the rest things like that that can contribute an awful lot to well, one of the biggest things now with homelessness and so on are middle aged people people yeah. in the 50s and 60s yeah. where their marriage breaks up after 20-25 years yeah now, in the past, they would soldier on. Yeah. You know, the, the marriage would continue. They'd, they'd find a way through it, but there doesn't seem to be that resilience. Yeah, they just give up. Yeah, and, they, yeah. and now what you're finding is, especially single males, looking for accommodation. Yeah. One bedroom accommodation doesn't exist. Yeah. Doesn't exist. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's a real, it's a different, different. So the sofa suffered yeah. for years. Yeah. yeah. And there's there's nothing for them mm-hmm. and there's not going to be anything for them in the near future yeah. because of the way the benefit system works yeah. a single person best you can hope for is a single bed yeah. Yeah. and who's building them nobody exactly. they're not there exactly yeah. Yeah. so let's go on to um, a new topic a new topic <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, right let's talk about the the bud- well, basically the underspend of your budget how did the SNP manage to spend underspend four hundred forty four million quid on a budget which I mean which money technically could have gone towards something could have gone towards like for example the NHS or supporting something else but I mean four hundred forty four million is a lot of money to underspend on. It is a lot of money, and uh, you won't be surprised if I say it's not actually an underspend. Okay. Uh, the op- the opposition are jumping up and down and making capital out of it as if we'd uh, as if we took this money away in the back drawer and uh, 
done nothing with it. And I would remind you, the last year of the Tory Lib Dem government, mm. they really underspent by over a billion. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And they had a consistent record of underspends. Yeah. Which, yeah. which was, you know, they can't find something to spend the money on. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, the, the, the so-called underspend that uh, we're talking about here is money that's earmarked. It's just mm. not been spent yet. Yeah. I mean, if you commit to a project, yeah, the way the, the way the Scottish government's funded, yeah, we need to have the money for that. Yeah. So, yeah, it sits in the bank account. It's mm. not an underspend. Okay. It has to be spent at some point. Now yeah. that that absorbs about three hundred million of it. Mm-hmm. So there's about one hundred and forty-four million that comes under various other headings, and it's a complicated business. But there is a system of clearing between the Treasury in London and the government in Scotland. Yeah. And uh, at the year end, yeah. it all has it's to settle up. And that yeah. 144 million is part of that settling up between, yeah. the, between the two governments. Yeah. So it's obviously too complicated for Labour to understand, but yeah. uh, <laughs> it, it is not an understanding. Yeah, believe, believe, <laughs> believe me, if, yeah. if John Swinney had five bob left at the end of the year, I think he'd be crying at his tea because there is so much to spend the money on. Yeah, and the budgets yeah. go down every year. So what, what kind of what? So what is this kind of earmarked for? If you're allowed to t- talk about being more specific things, oh, you I can only talk in general, really. All oh, right, general. Yeah. Okay, I, mean, so I, mean, I mean, it's, it's not. It's, right, okay. it's a secret. I just yeah. haven't gone down the list and <laughs> memorised. I can it. understand. For example, I, it's like we have in Dundas. We have a uh, a primary school that's going to be moved into an old high school building, and the plans have gone through. But there's a few delays now because some of the contractors want a bit more money to do the job. So mm. you can see, well, the money's been set aside and then in turn the contractors come back and say, actually, no, we need a bit more and they're going to have to negotiate. So you can see where money could be yeah. delayed in that sense. I can give an analogy with the local council, for example. Local council uh, decides to build a school. It borrows the money from the DWP. That money has to be drawn <coughs> down in different tranches at different times and paid out at different times. And the council at any given time will have a certain amount of that money sitting in the bank account. Yeah. yeah. Now, if they have five or six million, the national government's going to have a multiple of that. Do, you, yeah. do the Scottish government sort of fund the council a little bit? Well, it, it depends. Are you talking about projects? Are you talking about that well, sort of day-to-day funding? Just general stuff, because yeah. I'm look, looking at... Uh, I mean, there's certain, for, example, well, for example, there's a... There's a the council at the moment are looking to build a whole lot of new nurseries around Edinburgh, for example, maybe Midlothian as well. But they're, for example, I'll give you an area. There's an area in Clermiston. There's a nursery. It's been there for twenty eight years, and they've been serving. It's within a, in the grounds of a school. It's been serving kids. It's been educating them. And but for what the councillor are proposing, let's build a million pound nursery right next to on, take away part of the playing field which is going to stop the kids from playing getting exercise the whole point is you want to get kids to exercise these days because of the obesity mm. uh, and but there so this nursery has been for 20 years is the people have to apply for their own jobs I mean yeah. why don't they put the money into what's there already I mean I don't know that specific case but, unfortunately but, uh, but it's it's you can use, use that but, as an example for example but, 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 let me let me, let me talk about government funding to councils and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, councils only raise ballpark 20% from council tax. Yeah. The rest of the money comes from the central government. Yeah. It's a block grant. Uh-huh. Now, in the old days, before the SNP government, it used to be bits ring fence for this, that and the other. And we felt that uh, that didn't give the local 
government the flexibility it needed mm. because you know they know what the priorities are locally yeah, and they yeah. need to respond to these priorities. It shouldn't be central government saying you can only spend it on this or that or the other. Yeah. So they get, their, they get their block grant. How they divvy that up mm. is up to them. They've got core services to deliver, education and aspects of health and child and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. they have to divvy it up and provide these services. Now, the agreement in return for that money is there will be certain outcomes. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, you've got to do it this way, and we're ring-fencing it so you do it this way, we're saying, look, this is what you've got to achieve. You've got to improve, say, improve the uh, education outcomes for the children. Yeah, yeah. How you do it is up to you. We're giving you the money. Yeah. You spend it the right way, and you get that outcome. And at the end of the year, they report back as to how they've done, yeah. better or worse. Now, local government in Scotland has had a higher proportion of the budget than under previous regimes. Mm-hmm. We give about, off the top of the head, 34% of the Scottish budget actually goes to local government. Yeah. And that is up from about 32 point something. So it's a small increase. But yeah. And that, in spite of the national budget shrinking, mm-hmm. that percentage has stayed the same. Yeah. So yeah. we've kept proportionally the share of the cake yeah. for local government is the same. And if you look south of the border and see what's happening there, mm-hmm. it's scary. Yeah. I mean, they're chopping services left, right and centre. There's been cuts of up to 25% to council budgets. Mm-hmm. It's just frightening. One, one council down in the south of England has actually privatised all its services. Oh. Everything. Yeah. So the council itself is just a core, yeah. and everything else is privatised, yeah. which to me is bonkers. Yeah. Absolutely bonkers. It'll be interesting to see what their financial report is at the end of that, for that, for that council that has privatised everything, to see if they can... Keep within their budget. Or yeah, keep it's within. too soon to tell yeah, um, as to how it's going to do. Privatisation worked so well with utility companies and everything, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we all have we all have dealings with that. Sorry, back to back to the funding for the yeah, sure, no, for no. the council. The other type of funding they get, for example, here in Midlothian, they're building a, a new high school at uh, New Battle. Okay. Uh, to replace an existing one. Now, the council's ambitious. S&P Council, it's ambitious and it wants to add a community hub to that. Mm. So there'll be facilities added on to that. So what they've done is they've negotiated a deal with the Scottish Government that the Scottish Government will provide the money for the school Mm. and the Council provides the money for the add-ons. Makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of partnership. Everybody Mm. gets what they want and uh, the community benefits at the end of the day. And by the way, that is not PPP. (laughs) Yes, because that was the worst thing. Yeah. I mean, we are still crippled by P- PPP, yeah. both yeah. as a national government and yeah. as individual councils. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a bonkers idea. Yeah, yeah. Using yeah. that word a lot today, am I? Exactly. Politics. The two go hand in hand sometimes. Well, let's talk about well, uh, Hugh here wants to talk about uh, the name person scheme because yeah, with him being a parent, he uh, wants to talk about the reason regarding that situation. Yeah. Why? I, when I talk to a few people um, that I know who are parents as well, and because all these subjects have come from people we've asked, as a group, so we're going to be speaking to you, um, and they said, "Oh, can you ask about this and the different subjects?" And uh, a lot of it is about the new name person scheme because um, uh, if people have, um, especially young children. Um, and now there's quite a lot of um, things in the press about you know what's going to happen to to parents you know if if their child gets bullied if their child goes through a particular issue are we finding that the parents are actually going to be informed about what's happening 
or are they just going to go to this name person scheme that we don't seem to know who they are? It could be a headmaster, it could be somebody in the community. Um, it's really the, I suppose the idea of why would you want to take that role away from the parent um, and not let them know about certain things? Because we've already seen, I think there was a survey in Dundee that was done asking questions about um, certain things that parents found out about that thought was a bit intrusive. Um, and obviously as a role as a parent we want to know what's happening with our children so that we can have the first hand and the first input and um, not the role of the state. Um, what's, what would be your view on the, on the name person scheme as to why you think it's a good idea? I think there's been a lot of mythology about this one. Um, I'm on the education committee at the parliament so mm-hmm. I've been very much involved in the, the named person debate if you yeah, like. Yeah. Um, this all came about actually in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were actually the first uh, council to put Girfek in, you know, mm. get, it, get it right for every child. Yeah. And they've done a fantastic job, an absolutely fantastic job. And as part of that, parents were fully engaged in it. And, you know, the success is due to the partnerships that they've been able to forge between the different elements in the council and outside and the parents and all the rest of it. And it was the parents that pushed for a named person. They said, look, this is, this is wonderful. What you put in place is great, and we're seeing the benefits, but we need somebody we can go to. We need somebody we can go to when there's a problem. Mm. And the name person concept was brought in there before we ever looked at it from the Scottish Government's point of view. Yeah. Now, the name person is not intended to take over from the parents. Mm. Uh, far from it. There seems to be some thought that this is some kind of a, a government plant that's going, mm. to be, that's going to be substituting for the parents and the parents are going to be cut out. Not at all. The whole idea is that this is a point of contact. There is a designated point of contact. You talked about bullying. Yeah. The parents are probably going to be the first people to know if their child is being bullied. Mm. The named person is a point of contact to go to by the parent and say, we've got this problem. And yeah. the named person then has a responsibility to work with the parents on it. The teachers can go to the named person. Mm-hmm. The kid can go to the named person. The named person, you touched on the possibility it might be the head teacher or that. Yeah. It could be. The government's not, not laying down to councils who they must appoint. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I would expect most likely if the kid's at school, it's going yeah. to be a teacher of, uh, at some level. Yeah. Yeah. Now, past experience up in the Highlands is it's not used that often mm. because parents don't need it that often. Yeah. But parents have to see it as a support, not as a substitute. It's yeah. intended to add, to make it easier. Because mm. your, kid's, your, your kid's being bullied, your kid's got a problem. Yeah. You sometimes say, well, where do I go for this? Who do I speak to? You know, we yeah. need a bit of help. It's not something we can handle ourselves internally. Yeah. Let, let, let's see what we can do. Go to the name person. That name person will signpost to the right place. Yeah. You know, they're not intended to be the be-all and end-all and have, the, have all the answers. Uh, uh, but most kids, through their, uh, through their life yeah. in school, will hit a problem once in a while. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's life, human being. Mm-hmm. The name person is there to help and support. Yeah. What we're doing is we're actually formalising perhaps something that is there already, yeah. but, not on a, not on a, but isn't really on a, on a formal basis at this point. Yeah. I suppose people's concerns are that they are, if a child has an issue and it goes to the named person, because that's who they're kind of maybe through the school encouraged to do, that those things will remain confidential between the child and, and, the, and the teacher or the, the named person, and the, the parents might never find out about it. 
And yeah, it could be quite an important issue. Yeah. And no. I think that's where there's, the fear comes from that, well, I want to know if my child's being bullied if or if there's an issue or if they've done something. And take, take again bullying, as, a, bullying as, a, yeah. as, a, as an example. If the kid went to, went to the, the name person mm. and said, I'm being bullied, yeah. the parents would be involved. Mm. I mean, the name person is there so that the kid knows where to go or the parent knows where to go. They're yeah. not a substitute for parents. Yeah. They're there to support. So they'll always be, they'll always be telling the parent the what's pa- happening. The parent is a vital part of the kid's life. Yeah. You can't cut them out. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some families go through problems in their lives. Yeah. It could be marital problems. It could be anything. Yeah. And again, this is where the name person can give support because if the school knows there's a problem, they can help support that kid better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe even help the family yeah. through other sources through that period. Yeah. yeah, it's help. It's not a substitute. Yeah, and that's that's, that's interesting certainly um, because uh, that is that is probably one of the biggest concerns that I when I speak to people. That's what they have. It is not Big Brother. Yeah, it's really formalised in something that uh, informally already exists in most places. Yeah, yeah, and it's something you'd like to have in place. I mean. I'd like to think uh, if my kids were at school and had a problem, they'd have somebody they could go to. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know. I can. I can see that. That makes sense. But I said, well, it's just making sure that the parents are fully informed of what's going on. Um, you know, because allegations can be made, um, and then they're thinking, well, they just keep that between the name person and the school, and the parents might be unaware. Well, you you worried that the kid goes to the name person and says, my, Cause my dad's beating say, me up. Well, no, I mean, if it's a genuine case, of course that would be sensible. Yeah. But we do know that people don't always tell the truth, and all of a sudden the parents might find out, you know, because this person didn't get whatever they wanted or whatever, and they're complaining, or the, or the a teacher might pick up on. Um, we had we had a, an incident that my, my wife's involved in nurseries and um, uh, she was speaking to when they all go and collect the children and one of the other friends there their their daughter had a, had had, um, had fallen the day before at the nursery um, and the teacher didn't realise that actually that was the case and so she asked the parent oh did what happened to you and it was getting quite inquisitive and immediately we thought now why are they asking yes they want to ask the questions but the way they did it it was almost like they were saying they were going to take this behind the scenes mm-hmm. um, rather than actually say and then when the parents said to them no actually she fell over at this nursery and the other, the other teachers know about it then you know then it was obviously resolved but it, it, it makes people think that well maybe they're, they're trying to maybe say well this person could be doing this to this mm-hmm. person therefore we better keep this under the book so you know we must deal with the name person scheme and mm-hmm. social services and not actually, um, you know, look at the facts or, or let the parent know what's happening. I think, we, I think if a child went to a named person and gave allegations of abuse, to be honest, I think they should be investigated. Yes. yes because right. you just never know if, if yes. it is true. Uh-huh. Uh, mostly, as far as I'm aware, these are handled with a degree of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Now, I can understand the concerns parents might have if, uh, you know, some children for want of a better word, do fantasise a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's possible the allegations might not be correct. Mm-hmm. But I would say you would still have to follow it through and yes, make sure. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, these things can be can be disproven or whatever very quickly. Mm-hmm. But it has mm-hmm. to be done with a bit of tact. Um, I think that... Uh, I think there has to be sensitivity on that. But I don't... Th- I would hope that, regardless of the name and person, if yeah. a child went to a teacher or whatever with those allegations, they would still yeah, have to be followed up. You know, yeah. It's not specific to the name person. They're mm. just no focus point. Yeah. That's all. 
And is that a rule that you would like to bring out um, to all schools in, in Scotland in terms of like private schools as well? Name person? Yeah, the name person scheme. Well, that would be that, that would be for the... Yes, I would. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's really up to the council yeah. how they decide to do it in their own area and yeah. how they achieve that. Yeah. I mean, the easy thing when a kid's in school is to have the teacher. But you have to think also, well, what happens during school holidays? Yeah, How does yeah, that work? And yeah. those are things that the councils are, are now working through. Uh -huh. is, it, is it something that has cost... It sounds very complicated. When you, when, you, when you mentioned school holidays as well, having an extra... Part. Just uh, restarting it, I've got a bit of a, a, a ring in the background, so... <laughs> <laughs> we'll carry on. Yes, yeah, so carry on, on the name person scheme. Um, just in terms of, have you had feedback from teachers saying that it's an extra piece of work for them to do to try and organise who's named for this? And uh, if if somebody then comes after school time to say, oh, you know, I need to discuss this, that's more work for them mm -hmm. and more paperwork. Is that something that at all has come up? Or I think there were concerns at first that this would add hugely to teacher burden yeah. because again they were looking at this name person, all these kids, yeah, you know. Yeah. But the reality is. It's not going to be a huge burden on teachers because most of them are doing it already. Yeah, you know, yeah. most most teachers are available to the children yeah, if they yeah. have a problem, mm -hmm. even after school or whatever. It's part of the job. Yeah. Kids have problems, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what teachers are there to help yeah. with in school hours. And so, in effect, you're saying basically it's making what's already in place really official. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So there's a couple of other things I'd like to bring up. Okay, I noticed you've got oil and gas thing in front of you. Mm. <laughs> I just couldn't hear. Um, with the recent drop in gas oil prices, now obviously at the time, obviously this is now hindsight in a sense. With the the coalition, obviously with the some of the coalition, the independence campaign that you based your uh, a lot of the the sort of campaigning was based on the oil and things and uh, what what we would if, what we would done with it, but now the price. Has dropped. What would I mean? What's the question? To, how would you pay the bills? In terms right. of, yeah. yeah. So, uh, how would you simply pay the bills because you know it's not coming in now? Mm -hmm. The money. One, one of the most frustrating things about the uh, referendum campaign was this focus on oil and gas, as if it was the only thing that was going to make us financially viable. Mm. Uh, and you know, the the threat that the price might go up or might go down. Now. During the referendum campaign, we fixed the price at a level uh, which was below what the UK Treasury was projecting. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, I think we were quite conservative at that time. Now, oil prices have always gone up and down. Mm -hmm. They've yeah. always bounced about. I mean, back in 2009, which isn't that long ago, yeah. they were down to 50 bucks a barrel. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think t 10 years or so before that, they were down at 10 bucks a barrel. Yeah. So... Nobody turned around and said, well, you know, the UK is going to collapse into a heap because the, the price yeah. is down. And indeed, there's not a lot of advertising in the papers about it, but the prices have come up again by about 20-odd percent. Mm -hmm. So the prices are on their way back up. Yeah. How far they'll go, that's uh, uncertain. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, oil and gas are a blessing to Scotland, not mm -hmm. a curse. And the, the percentage of the GDP... The fact that they that the, they they're only about fifteen percent of our GDP compared to Norway, which is thirty, mm -hmm. we're less dependent on it, and that dependency is reducing every year. Uh, the taxes we get from it mm -hmm. are only a few billion pounds a year will be our share. Yeah, very important. Yeah, fantastic to have, 
and I'm looking at the map here on the wall, which down the west coast of Scotland, there's huge oil reserves that are not yet exploited. Yeah. And new technology is going to enable that to happen. There's a new oil field off the coast of Shetland. There's a huge oil field off the coast of the Clyde, mm -hmm. which we are not allowed to develop because uh, the uh, UK government has its nuclear subs going in and out of there, right. so the oil stays in the ground. I'm happy for it to stay in the ground. It'll be an asset for Scotland in years to come when we get rid of Trident. Um, but there are huge resources there still yeah. to be tapped. Talking about this Trident thing and talking about linking the NHS, now there's been a lot of... I mean, at the moment, the government wants... is putting money into Trident, obviously not any, but mainly the, 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 the Tory government. But nurses now... Are struggling in mode. Basically, what do you, what is your verdict on? I mean, it is true that a lot of the the politicians are getting high wage rises, but oh, nurses really? exactly. <laughs> where's my where's my check? <laughs> okay, exactly. Well, okay, but NHS nurses who are on the front line who are basically uh, sweating buckets uh, for their job uh, for the people of to help the sick and, and everything are getting sweeties. Yeah. I quite agree with you. Nurses are not paid as much as they should do for the jobs they get, the jobs they have. Um, it's cold comfort to the nurses in Scotland that they're better paid than down south of the border. Now, they've got better conditions here than they have south of the border. Yeah. And down there, it seems to be absolute chaos. Mm. And I don't know how they still function. Um, I agree with you that uh, Westminster politicians have given themselves fat increases, um, which I think is totally inappropriate. We've never done that up here. We've taken the same increases in the Parliament and the MSPs. When was, when was the last time the Westminster government gave themselves an increase? Was it like I know last, there, was a, there was a recommendation, last year. wasn't it? Last uh, year they, they gave themselves thirteen percent. Did they, did they actually go ahead? They went ahead. Yeah. So they they were quite quite well off. Thanks. Um, we've we here as politicians in Scotland have stuck to one percent, which is the same mm. as the civil servants get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know I think that's fair. I mean. People are not getting huge increases. Yeah. There are the people on the ground. The mm. budget's not there. The money's not there. If yeah. you give if you give pay rises, you're gonna to have to pay people off. What's better? So so, yeah. what, so what's the what's the SNP's plan <clears throat> to improve the NHS services in Scotland? Because at the moment there's there seems to be a lot a lot of the hospitals are struggling at the moment. And there is a would you not agree with saying there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians? In, in the phrase and get rid of the middle management and put the money into more nurses on the front line? Well, I certainly think that uh, we've got to watch our levels of management because we've had a, mm -hmm. we had a purge a few years ago and got rid of 25% mm -hmm. of the management. Because <clears throat> as you say, it's nurses yeah. we need, yeah. hospital beds. Yeah, doctors and that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think that uh, in Scotland we've done better with the NHS the south of the border, where these trusts are starting to go bust. Yeah. There's one in London there that they're actually closing down. Oh, right. It's bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. There's another one with a £300 million deficit. Yeah. And we're talking big bucks here, big yeah. bailouts. Yeah. We don't have that in Scotland. Yes, we're tight. Mm. The budget has been increasing in real terms. But if you look at the figures, in the last three years, the number of people attending outpatients has gone up by 34%. Yeah. 34%. I mean, the use of the services is increasing yeah. at an absolutely phenomenal if, rate. If the services are increasing, should we not be either... <clears throat> if, you've got fun, if you've got money sitting there, kicking around, uh, should you not say, let's build some more hospitals or something, or build more to, to 
counteract that. Mm. I mean, for example, the, our lo- the main hospital within the Royal Infirmary, I mean, okay, it's a public, partly publicly funded. The way, I mean, I don't know why in the first place they built that because the old building was bigger and they could have refurbished stuff perfectly. You just city centre building, now they moved down to here, which and it's smaller and worse off yeah. for the people. And plus, it's the one main controversy is the way it's because it's publicly funded um, that the car parks and the charges and all that is putting putting on the people for the sick and visitors coming to visit the sick. Why can't they say, listen, it's time to stop this and say, listen, we'll take over the parking, make it free and to give it money back, give the people back to the sick because they're... I mean, this is crazy at the moment. You're pushing an open door there. I know, exactly. I mean, but the, gov- the government has already taken back those car park contracts that it can at hospitals. Yeah. yeah. But the like of the ERI, frankly, is just too expensive to take yeah. back. It's got to run its course. Uh, yeah. Eventually, it'll be... Yeah. It'll be uh, Hopefully free, but until then it comes down to the charges. contracts that were written. It's the contracts that were the private groups that did it. But, but coming back to money going into the NHS, I've said that you know although the Scottish budget has been going down steadily and will continue to reduce over the next yeah. few years, we have increased the funding for the for the national health. And in fact, John Swinney announced an additional three hundred eighty four million for next year. That's new money. Now it's not enough. We've got more old people. Mm-hmm. We've got more use of the services. We've, uh, we, we. It's it's tight. It's yeah. very very yeah. tight. Yeah. And it needs more investment. Mm. What what's the talking just to go off it? We, we talked briefly before we started the podcast. Um, we talked about pollution. But then, what is this? What is SNP's kind of thoughts on green? All the green stuff like. Wind farms, etc. What is your? Well, I think we've got thoughts? pretty good uh, good credentials there. I mean, we're approaching the point where fifty percent of our electricity is going to come from renewables, mm-hmm. you know, from hydroelectric power, wind farms, and a, and a, a variety of other sources. Yeah. And you know, I personally have a ground source heat pump at home, okay. and solar pumps in my mm-hmm. roof, and all this sort of thing. We can all contribute to a certain extent mm-hmm. towards reducing our carbon footprint. Now. If you're talking about climate change and, and what we can do to combat that, I don't... I mean, I'm not a technical guy. Mm. I don't know whether climate change is a natural process, how much we've contributed to it or what. All I know is that, by, that we're not going to have carbon fuels forever. Mm. We need to work away from that. And that reducing the carbon going into the air reduces the pollution and makes it healthier for all of us and our kids. So, yeah. to me, it's a no-brainer. Mm. Mm. Um, I'd like to see the end of nuclear power, mm-hmm. but you see the mess up in Dunray yeah. trying to decommission that. How many years have they been working on that? Yeah. And yet yeah. all this stuff's going into the sea and you know the, 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 the radioactive rubbish going out into the sea, they can't take the fish and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. All these are compelling reasons why we want renewables. Mm-hmm. Now, the renewable industry is one of the growth industries in Scotland, in mm-hmm. spite of you get the odd setback, you know, like companies going bust that are doing wind uh, tidal power and so on mm. we'll get there in the end yeah. I think that uh, Scotland will re-industrialise around renewables mm. that we can become a world leader in renewables there's only about 11,000 people working in renewables in Scotland now, the projection is that around about 2020 we'll have 100,000 yeah. simply yeah. because of what's happening mm. and I think it's a, a fantastic opportunity I mean once the tidal power 
is being captured. That yeah. gives us our base load. That means that, that means we can switch off the nuclear power station mm. and rely on tidal power. Because if the tides don't come in and out, we've got a problem. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so we're good. So that's fantastic. And, and yeah. we've got a coastline that we can have these in so many different places. We can supply power. We could supply power to Europe. Mm. We, we already export something like 25% of our electricity. Yeah. The big challenge is going to be in heating. Because yeah. that's much more difficult. Uh, ground source heat pumps and so on are part of the answer. Mm-hmm. But personally, I'm plugging geothermal. Oh, right. If you look at areas like my constituency, which are sort of post-industrial, mm-hmm. they're old coal mining areas, yeah. it's full of these flooded mine shafts. Now, everybody sees these as a, as a danger, a threat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see them as an asset. Mm-hmm. We can harness that for geothermal energy mm-hmm. and create heat district heating yeah, yeah. around the place. Now, we've got, we got a development here, say, 4,000 houses coming up in Shawfair, yeah. just, out, just, out, just on the borders of Edinburgh and Midlothian. Yeah. What an ideal place. The Moncton Colliery is there, the old Moncton Colliery. Mm-hmm. We could tap into that, produce geothermal energy, and provide cheap energy to all these houses. Yeah. Why yeah. not? Yeah. And it's clean. Yeah. And it's renewable. Mm-hmm. We, should be, we should be doing more of this. Yeah. Because gas is going to run out, oil's going to run out, yeah. but you know something? Well, There'll still be water down these pits, pits in 100 years' time. So what's your view on fracking? A lot of people are for it, some are against it. I'm uh, absolutely against it. Why are you uh, against it? Well, I, I looked into what fracking meant and what it would do. Now, it's got a poor history. Okay. If you look at America, Canada and Australia and what's been done there, in some cases the devastation that's been caused. Now, don't run away with the idea that all the stories you hear about fracking are accurate. Mm. They're not. Some of them are sort of apocryphal tales. Yeah. But there is sufficient there to cause concern. And in an area like the Midland Belt of Scotland, which is ideal for fracking, we have a very delicate sort of uh, environment mm. If they get it wrong, we could pollute our water supplies for the next couple of hundred years. And then what do we do? Yeah. What do we do? This is a, you know, fracking, fracking is a, is a slight economic advantage from a cost point of view. I mean, because it's kind of revolutionised America. That's what's really helped the recovery in the mm-hmm. US by the fracking. It has. And, I mean, it's completely... Of course, oil prices, have dropped, right down. But oil prices have dropped now. Yeah. Gas prices have dropped now. Yeah. So fracking is no longer as attractive as it once yeah. was. Yeah. But, the, but part of the problem they have there is the fracking process is such that you have to drill down yeah. and then you go horizontally into the, into the scene. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm told that the explosions, and I use explosions advisedly, are something like three on the Richter scale. Mm-hmm. In Midlothian, we've got all these mines, which yeah. have got pit props and so on that are probably a bit iffy by now. Yeah. You set up vibrations, yeah. and the whole thing could collapse. Yeah, you know, I think we have to be very careful where they went to do it. And we don't know where they all are, because yeah. there's been from the time of the monks, they've mm. been digging holes and squirreling yeah. away tunnels and so on. So we need to be careful with that. Yeah. But the other thing is, you've got this. 300 meter drill mm. which is filled with concrete to give a tube mm. and then when the gas has been extracted it's backfilled. Yeah. 
You've got a rigid concrete tube going through the earth. Yeah. The ground moves. Exactly. Yeah. And anything that's rigid is going to fracture. And that's where a lot of the pollution's coming from mm-hmm. in America. Yeah. So, so, so I'm not prepared to risk it here. I'm not prepared to have it that we pollute our water supplies and cause problems that are going to last the next 100 or 200 years for mm-hmm. short-term economic gain. Yeah, yeah. Is it, I'm, I'm certainly, and some things I agree in terms of, like, for things like the tidal, tidal power, I think that's a no-brainer because, yes, it costs money to put it, to make it happen, mm-hmm. but once it's there, it's pretty much there and it's all under the water. What I'm not so keen on is covering everywhere with wind farms. And I know we've, I think I read in a report that was some of that we, we had about now 28% of our energy um, coming from renewable sources mm. in Scotland. Um, I know you were saying it was potentially more than electricity. That, right? electricity. If, you can include, if you include hydroelectric and yeah, so on. Yeah, yeah. And my, so, you know, <coughs> we're getting in the Scottish borders, there's wind farms going up everywhere. Um, and there's one year where, where we live and so on. And it does make it, you know, it makes quite a, a strong sound when they're all going. It's quite a strong sound, um, and so it, it does affect the environment in that way also. It, they might look nice for a little while, some people might think they look nice, but after a while it really kind of disrupts the whole environment, doesn't it? You know, I don't see tourists coming to have a look at them, you know, it's kind of, it, it kind of puts, I would say more so, I find people don't like them than people who do like them. And then there's the, the, the subsidy as well, because people kind of feel they're being bought off, because if they go, if they support a wind farm application, then the, the company will say, right, we'll give you a community centre, or we'll give you this... And actually, we kind of think, well, maybe we don't, you know, it, it just feels like they're being bought. And then these companies make a lot of money um, with good lucrative contracts for them. And yes, they're providing, you know, the, 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 the windmills are turning. Um, but then there are times and occasions when they're told to turn them off because they can't accommodate the power or the infrastructure to take the power isn't there. So it, how much do you, I mean, do you think, uh, you can say that we don't like, you know, we don't like gas, we want to try and get away from, you know, carbon fuels and so on, but... If we go renewable, will the cost not simply rise and rise and we're going to put ourselves at a really disadvantage and therefore those on low incomes are going to struggle to pay their bills? I mean, there's no economic reason why the prices of renewables should rise and rise and rise. Um, if you're putting a lot of money the, into it. We've had, the, car, we've had the, the carbon-based industry where prices per barrel of oil yeah. went astronomical. Yeah. And uh, at these prices renewables are very viable yeah. now as carbon based fuels run out so yeah. they're going to, the price of them is going to go up so mm-hmm. renewables are going to become relatively cheaper and more popular yeah. I don't disagree with you with uh, windmills I'm not, uh, or wind turbines I'm not, I'm not a great fan of them yeah. but on the other hand I look at, the, I look at them as being in the sort of model T age of, yeah. Uh, yeah, of right. wind farms and I think in 20-30 years you won't recognise the wind farms, they'll change totally. I mean, I can't even imagine what they'll look like. But I don't think we'll have big things going around like this. Yeah. I, think it'll, I think it'll be totally changed. Mm-hmm. And the other factor is, you know something? When you take a, when you take a wind turbine down, yeah. it's not a permanent thing on the... On the yeah, which is... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I, th- I think we need to be a wee bit patient with it. Uh-huh. A lot of this technology is very new yeah in terms of, in terms of its usage and it's being developed and made more efficient all the time uh-huh. there's different kinds of technology coming in i i i think i yeah. think we live with with the wind farms for the moment and we look forward to the next yeah. generation. I'm certainly looking forward to the time when they take them down. Clearly not a fan. <laughs> Quite a couple, a couple more points just to... I, yeah. um, as a, well, OK, what is the SNP's tactics for going forward, uh, coming up to the general election, we're counteracting, obviously, Labour, 
what Lib Dems are left, uh, Tories, and obviously UKIP. What is your kind of forecast? And the Greens are surging as well. What is your forecast for going forward and plans to obviously counteract and get the votes in Mm. for the general election? Well, I think uh, from what the polls are showing, we're we're doing the right things already. Mm. What we need to do is consolidate that over the next few weeks and ensure these people come out and vote for us. Um, Lib Dem and Tory... In this area, at least in my area, they're not really a a threat. Uh, And UKIP either. Uh, I think UKIP's pretty much shot its bolt uh, in Scotland. What's your what's your thoughts on UKIP? Obviously, they're they're quite popular. They seem quite popular in England. Obviously, we have one MEP, which is for Scotland representing, and obviously no MPs or MSPs. But uh, well, there were six MEPs in Scotland. They got ten percent of the vote, which just put them through. Uh, astonishingly, but I think I think it was also a, quite a protest vote at the time. And if you look what UKIP are polling now in Scotland, it, it's really quite low. Mm-hmm. You know, they they they're not going to do much in the Westminster elections. They're certainly not going to get a seat, and uh, I would say they're they're not even going to save a deposit if they stand here. Yeah, and I, I think th- I think they'll do better in England. I think, I think they, they will. A chance of getting because even if it was a chap. Um, John, well, the chap he's always interviewed on the BBC for for elections, and he was saying that he reckoned that the, the, third, the th- yeah John Curtis mm. he would they're reckoning between the three and five potential seats now. I think that's probably realistic. Yeah. Um, the trouble with UKIP is it doesn't really have a lot in the way of policies. If you actually look at their website and uh, and listen to them, they're making them up as they go along. You know, yeah. <laughs> they haven't actually got got a, a, a coherent set of policies, except we want to get out of Europe. Yeah. That's about it. There is a policy manifesto. We've been obviously, I'm a, I'm actually a, a supporter, and there is actually a, on their website a full manifesto. Mm. There, well, they're, you know, they're a list of of aims and 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 a kind of policy schedule. Um, but uh, I, I can see. It. I mean, in, I know in, in England it's very different because there's a lot more support down there. In Scotland. It's a different kind of system, and I it's think, a different approach. I think in England they're seen more as a nationalist with a small N party. Mm-hmm. They're seen as a party that's trying to stand up for English rights and so yeah. on, against yeah. Europe, the small man, all that sort of stuff. And I think to that extent they've been relatively successful. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they keep that momentum going forward, I really don't know. Yeah. Lib Dems are... Are they... I think they're going to be in real trouble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tories, it's going to be an interesting one because, uh, you know, people in Scotland vote Labour and mostly when they yeah. vote Labour they get Tory, yeah. which is the exact opposite of what you think. But if you look at the actual statistics going back over the last 40 years, yeah. most of the time we vote Labour and we get Tory. Mm-hmm. So that's quite an interesting. I suppose uh, that's what a lot of the Labour well, Jim, are saying if you vote SNP, you're going to get Tory, and you're saying if you vote Labour, you're going to get SNP, Tory. So yeah, well, I'm backing it up with statistics from like <laughs> 1970, 1979, yeah, exactly. 1983, 1987, so, 1992, yeah. and so on. So, well, that's good. So, um, so let's talk about you briefly. Just uh, so, what made you get into politics, and how long, how long has your career been, and and how do you, how long do you plan on keep going? Well, I've been a member of the SNP since I was fourteen. Wow. But I spent a, it's not that long. <laughs> Good for 21. <laughs> exactly. But I spent uh, many years overseas, uh, working overseas, so I wasn't 
active during that period. Then I was working in the city of London for some time, and I wasn't active during that mm. period. But uh, in 2001, we made our base again in Scotland, mm. and they used to commute up and down to London at that time, actually, which was real drag. Mm. Um, and I transferred my membership to the local branch, and one thing led to another. You know, Colin, would you deliver a few leaflets? So I did. Colin, would you knock a few doors and do a bit of canvassing? So I did. And then I found I was a, a council candidate in 2003. Yeah. And one thing led to another, and I ended up standing for the Westminster Parliament a couple of times, increased the vote them. Mm. And I stood for Holyrood a couple of times. And it was on the basis that they wanted somebody to be known, yeah. you know, get a name out there, yeah, keep, yeah. keep that name coming. And in 2011, well, 2007, I, I uh, became a councillor mm. in Midlothian. Mm. And at that point, I, I gave up my job in the city and uh, retired back to civilization, yeah. and was a councillor for Gorebridge, Newton Grange mm. in Midlothian for uh, quite, quite for five years. And then in 2011, I having made the, the, the seat a marginal one in 2007 and 2011, I actually succeeded in taking it with nearly a 3,000 majority. Well, uh -huh. yeah. And, uh, you know, we're keen to be given the opportunity to stand again, but we won't yeah. be choosing our candidates until after the yeah. Westminster election's over. Mm. Right. Yeah. What is uh, so? What, what was your sort of general background of work before you got into the sort of I was in, well. When I was overseas, I was in international banking. Oh, really? Okay, so. And uh, when I was in London, I was in investment banking. Right. right. So it's a bit of a change. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Pro probably you wouldn't say I was a as a, as a typical representative of a post-industrial yeah. uh, ah, ex-public sector. Yeah, to the but, public service. But I mean, my background is that uh, my father was a hospital porter. My mother was a crofter's daughter, mm. and I was lucky. You know, the thing, things fell in the right way for me, and I got the breaks, yeah, and yeah. I like to think I'm giving a wee bit back. So, um, I think that's pretty much everything. Is it, yes, so give us a final message to people listening to this uh, for going forward for your the election, and what would you say to the people who to get you to vote? Well, get, yeah, the, get, your, get to get the vote from them, I should say. That's what I'm trying to say. I think I think people need to understand that the only way that we're going to uh, get influence in London is by a strong SNP contingent down there. Now, whether that leads to any sort of coalition that's been talked about or not, mm -hmm. the fact is you have a, a line of SNP MPs sitting on the benches down there in Westminster fighting Scotland's corner. We're going to get a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. The guys down in Westminster would like to walk away. They would like to just forget about us. You know, the referendum's over, forget it, chaps, it's all okay now. Yeah. No, it's not. They need to understand that Scotland has its own views and we need to put these views and we need to, we need to protect and look after the people in Scotland. That is our sole focus. Mm -hmm. We're not looking over our shoulders at uh, preferment in Westminster or the possibility yeah. of a seat in the House of Lords. We don't do that. Yeah. And do you think, uh, in a final uh, question, do you think that if you do well in in the general election, get a good number of seats down there, um, that you will then put in for another referendum for 2020? My personal hope is that we will have another referendum within a few years. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's my personal view. Yeah. I just don't think they're going to deliver. What right. they're delivering is a lot less than what they promised. They promised full federalism, home rule, 
You know, Devo Max, these were all the ones that they used when they made their promises. Mm -hmm. This is very far from it. Very far from it. And I think that uh, it's seen as such, and the, the, the different political parties are all trying to water it down yeah. as it sits. And if we get someone in, like, say, Boris Johnson, who's very influential, he actually wants to abolish the Scottish Parliament, never mind giving more powers to Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of opposition down there. There's a lot of opposition to, yeah. to what's being proposed. Yeah. So yeah. we need people there that are not afraid to stand up and be counted, not afraid to fight their corner, not afraid to fight Scotland's corner. Yeah, I have one, one friend who's down south, and um, he always says that uh, if, if you do well in the general election and start voting on English laws, where you don't normally, you haven't done that mm -hmm. so far, um, that will basically annoy the English as much to basically say, there you go, have another referendum, and off you go kind of thing. Do you think that might stand up to scrutiny? Because there, there are some people in England who would quite like Scotland to go its own way again, yeah, or, to, or to try and go mm. you know, to, to have another referendum. Do you think by voting, potentially voting against um, you know, in English legislation, um, given the chance that that might have that effect? I think what, what's been talked about is we'd resume voting on issues that impacted on Scotland indirectly. Yeah. So, for example, if there's a decision taken to spend more or less money on health down in England, yeah. that directly affects our budget up here. Yeah. Therefore, perhaps we should be voting on that mm -hmm. because of the knock-on effect. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're talking about across the board voting on everything. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what impact that will have, I think it will annoy some of the, the unionist MPs, the mm -hmm. Tory and Labour MPs, mm -hmm. that, we, that we've started doing that. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I don't know that the general public yeah. it would have much impact on. Uh -huh. It would have it would have an impact in the Westminster village. Yeah, yeah. But other than yeah. that, we always we always overrate how many people are actually interested yeah. in yeah. these things. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you very much well, for giving us time today. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. It's been thank you for uh, the time we've had. It's been a really nice interview, and just to say goodbye to everyone listening and please we'll feel free and give us a comment on hatrickandramsey at gmail.com uh, on any topics that have been discussed with Colin and uh, we look forward to our, uh, talking to you again in the next podcast and thanks again thank you Colin pleasure thank, thank you. you cheers hello thank you for listening to our interview with Colin Beatty from the member of the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish National Party we hope you enjoyed uh, the show if you would like to comment on anything that was said, please email us at hatrickandramsey at gmail.com. Um, if you have any suggestions for people that we could interview, please get in touch and let us know what your, uh, who they might be. Also, give a, please give us your feedback and thoughts on the show. And please rate us. We're on iTunes. Give us a, a rate our show. Give us some hints and tips on how we can maybe improve and also please enjoy future shows coming up. So thanks again, and please take care, enjoy, hope you have fun, good week, wherever you're listening to around the world, and I want to say a quick th thank you to our listeners in America and other places in the world, it's fantastic. Please keep listening, if, we can if there's any Americans in, the U in Edinburgh, in the UK, or in Edinburgh preferably, we can interview and we can talk about maybe things or American politics if you or American things that while you're over here. That'd be great. Anyway, look forward to speaking to you soon. Take care. Bye for now. <laughs>